0: Well, again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 and finishing chapter 16 today. We're going to be talking about, as Seth said, the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And this story is found within the context of what it is that we've been talking about for the past few weeks now. of The issue of stewardship for the believer, the pitfall that wealth and money can be for all of us, and so we want to be attentive to these things that God has written to us in his word. Last week, I, in opening the sermon, I drew our attention back to Luke chapter 16, verse 13, and I emphasized really the end of verse 13, where he, Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. I'd like to again draw our attention back to chapter 16, verse 13, but this time draw our attention to what he says Earlier. In that verse. So Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the issue, the primary issue we've been talking about as a whole is that of stewardship. Stewardship. Poverty in and of itself is not, doesn't have any spiritual value. If you're poor, it doesn't mean that you're favored by God. If you're rich, it doesn't mean that you're favored by God. It's simply, as we're going to see in our passage today, what's been divinely allotted to each person and the life that God has given them to live. And the question is, for us as believers, are we going to steward what God has given to us well and steward it according to kingdom purposes, or are we gonna steward it according to self-serving purposes? I think for most of us, we find ourselves somewhat in the middle. As a believer, we genuinely do desire to steward what God has given to us for kingdom purposes, but we do dip and dabble into it for serving self as well. And this is the constant battle and struggle that we face. And we wanna continue to grow and have our hearts oriented towards a heart that fully is devoted to God, to His kingdom, and stewarding what it is that He's given to us well for the growth and the, uh, the expansion of the kingdom. But one thing that chapter 16, verse 13 reminds us of is that stewardship is always an issue of the heart. It's not just you can't serve God and money and you can't have two masters, and it's useless to have a divided heart to try and serve two masters, but the service of one is is the involvement of the love of that one that you serve. And so that's why he says, no servant can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The one that you serve is the one that you love. That's the one that you're devoted to. And the one that you don't serve is the one that you have a degree of hate towards and a degree of despising. And so stewardship is always... An issue and a condition of the heart. It's never just, let me just do the right thing and not worry about my motivation and why I want to do it. It's always, why do I want to do it? And am I doing these things right? Unto the Lord. It's about what it is that we really value. Stewardship reflects what it is that you really value and what you really love. And so, a heart that loves God happily stewards his resources with generosity and gratitude. A heart that's infatuated with the Lord and that loves the Lord happily stewards what God has given to them with generosity and gratitude. Because you see and you realize everything that I have, it's not really mine, anyways. It's all the Lord's. And when we say everything, we mean everything, it's all his. And so how is it that we're going to steward it? He's saying, this is what I've divinely allotted to you. What will you do with it? And a heart that loves God and is is trending that direction, it's on that trajectory, finds itself able to let go of the things of the world and use the things that God has given to us for the good and the benefit of other people. As an expression of love for God, an expression of love for them. But a heart that loves mon- money happily stewards resources for self. This, the money and the wealth that we have, that we acquire, that we currently hold on to, is just used to, I will happily steward that money for advancement of self, the happiness of self. And that would be poor stewardship of what it is that God has given to us. And so we wanna talk about what does it mean to steward for eternity, with eternity in mind. We all know, right, that the length of however long we get to live in this life is exponentially shorter than eternity, right? And so it would make sense that if we're really into investing for the long run, and we're really into stewarding things well for the greatest ultimate gain that we would then steward and invest in things that are eternal in nature and things that we get to enjoy for for all of eternity. And so it's been my prayer that as we have been talking about these things, we've been thinking about how it is that we're going to apply them to our lives and live them out in a very practical way. It's, It's great to know these things, but if we're not applying them, then we're not doers of the word. We're simply hearers of the word. And that's not that's not what the Lord would want, and that's not what North Hills Christian Church is all about. We want to be doers. And wealth is meant to, as we look at wealth, it's, we're reminded that it's meant to sustain life, not master it. Use the things that God has given to us to help and bless others rather than to be mastered by them ourselves. And so... We keep these things in mind as we read through Luke chapter 16, verses 19-31 through 31 together, and we'll look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and then consider how it is that we can take a text like this and apply it to our lives in the broader context of what Christ has been teaching both his disciples and the Pharisees when it comes to the issue of wealth. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." And he said to him, "Even if, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead." Jesus is, this is our third um, and final teaching in chapter 16 on the issue of wealth. when Jesus is talking specifically to the Pharisees. We remember that in chapter 16 verse 14, he's telling this story to them. This is a story about one man who serves God and the other man serves himself. And we see ultimately the distinction drawn between the two of them. The rich man is falls in line with a few of the other stories that Jesus has spoken about already, the prodigal son who wastes his father's possessions the manager who wastes his master's possessions, and now here the rich man who wastes his own possessions, or that which has been given to him by God. And so this is just another story and a string of stories of illustrations that Jesus has been teaching to the Pharisees and to the disciples on the issue of stewardship and what it is that has been given to an individual to use. And how is it that we're going to use what it is that God has given to us? And he's pointing this story at them, and it's penetrating their heart. They're they're getting angry and upset. And that's the intent of it as well, to penetrate our hearts and to cause us to think through what it is that our life is really composed of. And this falls in line with a couple of the other parables, which we'll look back on here in a few moments as well. We look at the rich man, contrast the rich man and the Lazarus, and Lazarus in this parable in particular. The rich man is self-indulgent. He cares of nothing but himself, of his own wealth, of his own prosperity, of his own life. He's a picture of the Pharisees, and he's really a warning to them, and he's a warning to us as well. It says it describes him, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. So purple being the color of royalty. It was expensive to make purple clothing. And the idea here is that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Every day he wore purple. I mean, you were well off if you could afford maybe a few things, maybe one outfit in purple. And the idea here is that this man could wear purple every day of the week if he wanted to. This is how rich and well off he was. And not only that, was he clothed in purple, but his also clothed in purple and fine linen. Fine linen indicating the undergarments that he wore. Not only was what he wore on the outside his robe, so for us it would be You know, not only our sports coats and our pants and our shirts and our jackets and our shoes, you know, things that people see as we present ourselves and we walk in the door, but your fine linen, your undergarments, your underwear and, and your socks, these were top of the line as well. And this is something that is very relatable to us in our culture. People spend hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars on a pair of socks, on a pair of underwear. And they have enough to wear every day of the week, plus some. Never having to wear the same outfit twice, probably for weeks or months in a row. This is, this is, this is expensive living to the hilt. This is having a walk-in closet that's the size of probably many of our bedrooms. Overflowing lavish with luxury is this rich man. And it, said, and it describes him as being a man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. He not only wore the best clothing, so that when I mean he was, this was a guy that was easily identifiable. We're talking about top-of-the-line name brand, from head to toe, even under what you can see, cruising in the best and expensive gold-plated car that you could imagine. And feast sumptuously every day. It's interesting, I think about this, and I think a lot of the times we look at wealth is oftentimes defined by what it is that we wear and the places we can afford to eat. And this is a guy who feasts. It says he feasted sumptuously every day. What can, when I say the word feast... What's the mental picture that you have of a meal where everyone's at a feast? Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas, some sort of huge celebration, where there's more than enough, right? he's feasting sumptuously. He has not only more than enough food, but he has the finest food and the best food there is to eat. He's dressed top to bottom, looking immaculate, He has more than enough food. It's overflowing of the best type of food. And it says that he does it every day, which is an indicator that seven days a week he eats this way, which is a reminder to us that there was no, in his house for the servants, there was no rest. There was no Sabbath. He feasts sumptuously every day. He always has the kitchen staff at work. He has no regard, ultimately, for the law of God. He completely disregards the fact that there's supposed to be a day of rest. We know that he's Jewish. He's supposed to be honoring the Sabbath. The the, the big picture of the story makes that abundantly clear. And so as a Jew, he should have a day off, not only for him, but for everybody in the house. But... By having his servants serve on the day where they should be resting, it shows that he sees himself and views himself as being above the law of God and what it is that God's word says. This is a man that is swollen with pride, conceit, selfishness. This man's life is all about him and about nobody else. And Lazarus, we see in verse 20, is laid at his gate. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. If he has a gate, it means that he probably has an estate. Lots of land, big home, has a gate. Why do people live in gated communities generally? Because I'm in and I want certain people out. And Lazarus is laid at his gate. Because this man, out of anybody in town who has the means to be able to care for Lazarus, it's the rich man. We're not going to lay Lazarus in an area of town where all the other beggars and all the other poor people in the poor part of the neighborhood of town. He's not going to find any help there. Let's lay him at the gate of the one who actually has the resources and the ability to help Lazarus and do something about his condition. And so the distinction is made between the man on the giant house on the hill and Lazarus who lays at his gate. Every day the rich man and his guests would pass by and see Lazarus as they came and went, and yet they would close their heart up to him and have no pity. Lazarus, on the other hand, it's interesting that the, man, the poor man in the story is the man with the name. The rich man is unidentified, no name. Lazarus, though, the, the man who suffers, the man who struggles, he's given a name. He has an identity out of between the two of them. And his name literally means the one God helps. And we see that carried out in this parable as well. He's laid at the gate of the rich man. He's a squatter. This is where he lives. And he says that he... Verse 21 desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man had more than enough at his table, and food would fall off, and oftentimes it would just be scavengers and animals and dogs that would come and eat up this food, and this is what he desired to, to eat. It's the same word that's used in the prodigal son in verse fifteen or excuse me, in verse sixteen, where the prodigal son longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He has this longing, as the the prodigal son longed just to eat something, even the, the filth that the pigs ate, so it is that Lazarus has just the desire to eat the scraps, the scrap food, that which we throw away at the end of a meal. Would it have been really that hard for after one of his meals for the, for the rich man, not even himself, but to take one, ask one of his servants to say we've got all this leftover food instead of throwing it into the trash? Why don't you walk it down the hill outside of the gate and give it to Lazarus because I see this man who's covered from head to toe with sores. He's starving, he's languishing away and he could use something to eat. Let's just give him the leftovers. But even then, the rich man's too greedy to do that. Has no regard for, the, for Lazarus. And Liz, Lazarus desires to be fed from what fell from the table, just the scraps. And his servants, those who actually show him the most kindness, are the dogs that come and lick his sores. That's just, the, the mental image I have in my head is Gross. Do you imagine covered in open sores and the only care you get is from dogs who come and lick you? That's your relief. Like the, 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 the part of the day that you look forward to the most are when the dogs come to lick you. That's, how, that's in how much anguish and agony that he's in. And dogs in that time they were not like household, cute, cuddly pets. You know, you post on Instagram or Facebook, oh, look at my cute little puppy I just got. Dogs were unclean animals. They were scavengers. Have you ever been to other countries and you've seen dogs walking and roaming around wild and with mange and they're, they're thin and emaciated and they're just eating scraps or whatever? This is like the dog, these are those types of dogs. Not like the, he doesn't have some like big furry cute fluffy dog come and licking him. These are scavenger ugly gross looking animals. And yet this is the only relief that he receives and it's meant to give a contrast between the dogs and the rich man. The dogs will attend to him even in their filth, and the rich man will not. And it's really a picture, Lazarus paints the perfect picture of the destitute sinner. A couple things that I want us to think about really at this point. Number one is that a few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of us as believers continuing to see ourselves in the light of being a sinner. There are wonderful truths that Scripture Gives to us regarding our new position in Christ as believers, being adopted, being loved, all of these wonderful pictures. And they're all true. But it's the sinner who comes to Christ because they see their need for him. The moment that you no longer see yourself as a sinner is the moment you no longer see yourself in need of a Savior. And so we're, we're and, and, and seeing yourself and being reminded of your sinful condition. Is incredibly humbling. And humility helps us grow in our gratitude and thankfulness because we can't imagine that one so wonderful as God would love and, and accept one so sinful as me. And so we're reminded that we have, we should see ourselves in having some things in common with Lazarus destitute, dying. Without hope. But in Christ, He comes and He redeems us and He adopts us and He calls us His own and He loves us and He cares for us and He provides for us all immeasurably more than we could ever ask for in Christ. The riches are are unceasing and they're deep that we have in Christ. And being able to and reminding ourselves of that helps us to do the other thing that Scripture calls us to do, that which we should be doing, that which the rich man would not do. And we're reminded in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can you see your brother's needs and close your heart off to them like like the rich man maybe at one time he seen lazarus for the first time maybe he felt bad but didn't do anything about it and then the repetition of seeing the same man day after day after day with the continual not doing anything about it over and over and over again, it tends to numb and harden the heart pretty soon. You you walk by people and you don't even see them anymore. Because it's easier to pretend that they're just not there rather than the idea of thinking what it might cost you to help them or to minister to them. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. The expression of of mercy and care for those who are in need is the opportunity to show that there has been a changed heart that we still see ourselves as people who were in need. If you still see yourself as a person who is in need of the grace and the mercy of Christ on a daily basis, then you'll be much more likely to be freed up to help those who are also in need. Because you see yourself as being in the same boat. You're no better, no different than them. Maybe your allotment in life is different in what God has provided. But God looks where? On the inside. Not on the outside. Both men die, we see in verse 22, and find them separated, and the tables are turned at this point. I was reading, going back again and rereading the parable of the rich fool in preparation for this. There's a lot in common. That's rich man and the rich fool. The rich fool in Luke chapter 12, when he has an abundance, says this, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich fool and the rich man have a lot in common. The rich man probably thinks that he has a long life ahead of him, he's got ample goods stored up for many years. Let me, let, me, let me use the money I have on me. Let me buy more stuff that makes me happy, more comfortable. And God says, you're a fool because tonight your life has been demanded of you. And all of this stuff, whose is it going to be? I think about this. I think about why do we accumulate wealth? And I think... W- one answer that's not necessarily sinful is that I will have something that I can pass on to my children. But you have after you're gone, you have no control over what your kids are going to do with it. What if, you, what if you give them the estate and give them the property? And they decide to, the day you're gone and in the grave, they decide to turn around and sell it and take the money and blow it on a... Something, a, a ski boat, or something that, you know, I mean, not that those are bad, but, you know, just blow it on something abs- just, just completely frivolous on themselves to make themselves happy. I mean, we really got to think through. Why do we, what am I saving for? This is the big thing, right? Save your money, save your money. And, and Proverbs tells us in wisdom that there is, there is wisdom in saving money. But how much is enough? And where are you going to finally arrive? What are we doing with what God has given to it? Am I just going to pack it away, pack it away, pack it away? Oh, my shed is too big. I'll just build a bigger shed. Pack more away, pack more away. And then what? Your life is demanded of you that very night, that very day. That's the situation of the rich man. And he stands in torment. The focus here, again, in verse 24, turns back to the rich man. What's interesting throughout this whole text is that Lazarus never says a word. Not one word. Abraham speaks on his behalf. Rich man is trying to speak with Abraham. He says that um, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. The the very thing that Lazarus desired that the rich man wouldn't give, mercy, is what it is now that the rich man finds himself in desire of. Have mercy on me. Mercy is to see the lowly destitute condition of another person and being moved by compassion to do something about it. That's mercy. When you just see someone's condition and you feel bad for them, but you don't do anything about it, that's pity. But when you're moved, you see someone's condition and you're moved and you do something about it, well now that's mercy. And that's what God has done for us. This is what the rich man wants. You see my condition. You see that I'm in torment. You see that I'm in anguish. Would Abraham, Father Abraham, would you please send Lazarus to relieve my condition? Would you please send him to have mercy upon me? What's interesting about this is that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. And it's just a further indictment how familiar familiar he was with Lazarus in his own life. He sees Lazarus. He recognizes him. And he knows his name. And his appeal to Abraham is to, to send him to have mercy upon me. What's interesting is that the rich man still sees Lazarus as a mere servant. Just to... Make his life more easy and comfortable. Father Abraham, I see Lazarus up there. Would you send him to serve me? The mentality of the rich man, even as he's in anguish and in torment, is still the same. He cannot imagine a world in which social stratification does not exist. He's even in being in torment, he's still blind to his sinful condition and what it is. He still sees Lazarus as his servant or as his errand boy. If he's not going to come and, and cool my suffering, then send him to my father's house where I have brothers there. He wants a religion that doesn't change his actions, but only the consequences of them. The rich man is still so blind to who he is and what it is that he's done that all he wants is to be delivered from the consequences of his actions. And not to be empowered to to do different things and to live a different life. Abraham's response is, in verse 25, child... Which is actually a real term of endearment. This is you in, in addressing him as the rich man as a child. It's his acknowledgement: you are one of my children. You are Jewish, and you are a descendant of mine by blood. But you are not part of my house in the aspect of saving faith. If you were, then you would be here with me. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. You received your good in your life. In your life, you chose you. And now you're suffering the consequences of it. And you're in anguish because of it. And Lazarus, he's with me because in his life, What was allotted to him, he chose differently, and he's the picture of the destitute sinner that has faith. The the idea of when he says that in your lifetime you received your good things, it's the idea that what had been given to him he had received by divine allotment. What he had been given, what the rich man had was given to him and he received it, not ultimately because he had worked hard enough to acquire it, but because it was divinely allotted. That was his lot in life, to receive that. And it's the same thing with Lazarus. His poor condition and the rich man's rich condition, these were divine allotments that God had distributed to the two of them. But the rich man chose his divine allotment to spend it on self, while Lazarus was a man that was a man of faith. And we're reminded in this that God has has divinely allotted to each one of us where it is that we live, what it is that we have, the, the condition of the world in which we currently live as well. And God's absolutely sovereign over all of it. In control of it all. And if you think about just the number of people in this room, how can one being manage all the details down to the minutiae just to the number of the people in this room alone? And then you think of all the people that are, live on the face of the planet and that have ever lived. All the things being orchestrated and organized by the sovereign decree and wisdom and power of God Himself. And so what it is that we're reminded of is that we, what we have has been divinely allotted to us by God and are we going to use it for wonderful kingdom purposes to bless other people, to show them the goodness of God and how great He's been to us and to live a life of faith? Or are we going to use it for serving self and continuing to accumulate and amass more stuff as we continue to chase the dream of our own happiness, which ultimately always fails. This is really, I think, about you know, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that suffer for their faith. They live lives, many, of poverty. They live lives of being destitute. Think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other countries and even like Afghanistan. Reports come out and say, we know that we have a week, two weeks to live. How are we gonna use our time? We always think that we have more of it. How is it that we're going to use the time that's been given to us? This is the hope of the martyrs, that I can go in this life without. And I can go through loss. And and ultimately, if it ends up costing my life to confess my love and my allegiance to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I know where I'm going. And, and, And that day is going to be a day that is unlike any other day, and it surpasses any day on this earth. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. This is the hope of the martyrs. This should be our hope as well. That if we go through loss and if we go without, that it doesn't change anything about where we ultimately get to go for all of eternity. Where is our hope? The conversation continues to go on between Abraham and the rich man. He says, you have received your good things and Lazarus and like man are bad things, but now he is comforted here. Can you imagine what How sweet that comfort must have been to Lazarus. Man who was just probably physically hurt and in pain every day. But now he's comforted for all of eternity. No more sores, no more poverty, no more destitution, no more dogs licking you. There's no need. No more medication, no more hospital visits. All of that is completely done and wiped away with when we get to go to be with Him. But you are in anguish. And what he says through verses 26-28 through reminds us of a couple things. Number one is that judgment plays an interesting role. It plays a role in finality. When judgment has been administered, it's done. It's finished. There are no second chances. There is no purgatory. At the end of your life, a judgment will be rendered and it is final. It is forever. It is eternal. We will spend eternity in one of two places, either in comfort or in anguish. And it all depends upon who we say Christ is. If you say that He is your Savior, He is your love, He is your treasure. I've been bought by His blood. I know that I'm a wretched sinner. I remember the gutter that He pulled me out of. But He adopted me. He loved me. He justified me. He sanctified me. And now I'm in glory with Him. And it's all because of Him. Solely because of Christ. And simply by faith and by faith alone in Christ. And what He's done for me on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sin. If that's our response, then there is an eternity of comfort to be with him. But if it's any other response, it's an eternity of hell, of torment, of separation. There's a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and those who may and, and none may cross from there to us. The other interesting thing that we see in here is that though judgment has a a final aspect to it, there's also a continuation. Because once the judgment has been rendered, it's not as if life is over. Life continues on. Forever. And it's to experience and to face the consequences of our lives. And... The distinction that Christ is making here is that it's either in one of two places as we've spoken about. At the end of it, he draws the attention back to the Word of God and the primary role that it plays in salvation. I beg you, Father, to send into my Father's house where I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They want more. Show me and show us the miraculous. The rich man has always had the testimony of the Word of God, the Law and the Prophets. A lawyer asked Jesus what the the fulfillment of the Law was. Jesus turns the question back to him and he says, what is it? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So he knew, and Jesus says, you are right. And so it's not as if they didn't have enough information. They have the right information. They don't listen to the testimony of of the Word of God that's been given to them. They completely disregard Moses and the prophets. The message of salvation that was foreshadowed, is now fully revealed in Christ. But, surely if someone rises from the dead, then they'll believe, right? And yet how many people reject the testimony of the resurrection of Christ? What, 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 would, it, what would the rich man's brothers have said? Lazarus has come back. Well, it's probably not the same guy. It's probably a different Lazarus. Or, he must, surely he must not have died. Right? Let's just come up with every excuse in the book that we can because it can't possibly be that someone would come back from the dead to testify. And yet in this, Jesus points to Himself and rose again. If only we had someone who believe. And my neighbors would believe to Himself in reference of saying, this we're going to listen if they see someone rise from the dead. The wonderful news and reality and reigns over all things and it only has to lead people to the empty tomb. What are you going to do? absolutely ridiculous just to do anything and everything possible to get the tomb in a resurrected Christ. But if He's... We believe and amends the God-man. And He rules and He reigns over all things. I want to, before we move to communion, I want to draw our attention briefly back to something else that um, Jesus encouraged his disciples and us to do as well. Luke 6, 32 through 36. Um, I think one of the things that we struggle with as we talk about being generous to other people is that we are most likely to be generous and good with those who are probably going to be generous and good back to us. And so it's easy to be nice to nice people, right? You guys are providing, many of you guys have provided meals to us. You're going to be providing meals to us. And it's, it's a wonderful ministry we're super appreciative of it, but what about what if you? What if we had a meal train for someone who was just like nobody could stand? You know, Jesus says in Luke six thirty-two through thirty-six, "If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them." I imagine that the rich man. When he had his feasts, invited his friends and his family members. He probably wasn't alone. And he probably thought, look at me, I'm doing great. I'm inviting those to my party who are probably going to invite me back to their party. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount but love your enemies now we need to think about this and you have to think about when you hear the name of who your skin just crawls love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. I think of Romans, I'm reading through Romans, and the end of Romans chapter 12 talks about the importance of not taking vengeance. Taking vengeance into your own hands and repaying with revenge those who have mistreated you, but instead to treat them with love and kindness. This is how God calls us to love other people. So if we're going to really think through about using the divinely allotted wealth that God has given to us in life, let us just go beyond the boundary of our current circle of friends and to think about those outside of that, maybe, probably even those that we don't like, and that rub us the wrong way, and we disagree with, and show them gratitude. Show them grace with gratitude as well. As we move towards, I think, I think that encouragement, that challenge, is an appropriate. Um, thing to help us move towards communion because we think to ourselves, how in the world am I going to do something like that? Why would you ask me to do something like that? And the communion table is a perfect opportunity for us to find the place, the means, the power, the ability to do something like that. In it, we're reminded that God is good and kind to the evil and to the ungrateful which includes me. And this is a reminder of his constant, his covenant love, his constant pledge of goodness and kindness to me because of who Christ is and what he's done, not because of how good or generous or lending I might be. And so I'm encouraged. This is an opportunity for worship. This is an opportunity for confession. This is an opportunity to embrace the goodness that's been shown to us in Christ. And to look at Christ in order to help us change as we should. If this is your first time at North Hills, we partake of communion together as a family. And so I, at this time, I do invite you to get up and you can get the elements. They're on the tables in the back. I would ask that you return back to your seat and just hold on to them. We'll have a few moments of meditation, prayer, and then we'll partake of it in a few moments together.